Hello, everyone. Welcome to Teaching Matters, a podcast produced by WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. As the new academic years begin, one of the things that I hope is at the forefront of all of our minds are diversity and inclusion, both in our classrooms and in our institutions or schools. My guests today are Dr. Michael Arrington, an assistant professor in communication studies at Sam Houston State University. Michael is an award-winning teacher who has expert who has experiences at several institutions prior to joining the faculty at Sam Houston. Also with me in the studio is Dr. Marlene De La Cruz Guzman. She is the director for the Office of Multicultural Student Access and Retention Programs at Ohio University. Um, I've worked with her on several occasions, as I have with Mike. Both Michael and Marlene have been tireless advocates for diversity and inclusion efforts throughout their careers. Because of a scheduling issue, Michael uh, is going to be recorded at a separate time from Marlene, uh, but we're going to go ahead and start having a discussion about what we mean when we talk about inclusion. So what I want to start with, Marlene, I know that you know, you and I both have been in higher education and around educational settings for quite a while now, and we saw the rise of diversity initiatives. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, um, could be wrong, but I feel like at least educational institutions are starting to understand why diversity is important, and we're, you know, trying to do that. Less often do you hear people talk about intentional strategies for inclusion. And I think you and I would both say that that's as important as saying that we want to be diverse. So can you talk about what you think inclusion means in you know your world and in your mind and, and why it is so important? Sure. So inclusion really means bringing students together so that they're having meaningful interactions with faculty, with staff, with other students, and so that learning is taken to a new level. Just having a group of students on campus is not enough. We need them to be integrated at every level of university interaction. So for us, that means providing an array of services that allows them right, to take advantage of high-impact practices across campus, whether that's service learning, community engagement, study abroad, um, supplemental instruction sessions, right, peer mentoring, leadership courses, all of those things and tying them in because it's not just a benefit for our scholars, it's Mm -hmm. also a benefit for everyone on campus as you get more diverse perspectives. So we often hear the the metaphor of the dance, right? Um, Having people at the dance standing at the walls is not good enough. We need them to dance with each other. And in this case, on the university campus, we need them to learn with each other Mm -hmm. and from each other. Mm -hmm. Now, your particular role is with the Office of Multicultural uh, Diversity Inclusion Initiatives. But, but of course, inclusion means uh, is equally as important for groups that would go outside what we would typically define as the multicultural students on campus. What are some other examples, just so the listeners can understand the breadth of what inclusion might potentially mean in a a school, a college campus, et cetera? Mm -hmm. Well, I think we're already very progressive at Ohio University. Our definition of multicultural includes not only underrepresented minorities, but also Appalachian students who aren't normally seen on college Mm -hmm. campuses. So already, we have a strong mix mm-hmm. of folks that are learning from one another. And that's before we even get to the rest of the campus. Mm-hmm. So already inclusion is defined differently, so is multicultural student. Mm-hmm. Now, as, as we think about, um, you know, your hat, you get to look more at the institutional level and programmatic level. And so you've already mentioned some of the practices that, 
your office uses at Ohio University as uh, strategies for inclusion. Could we maybe delve into a few of those and talk sure. about how you enact those in, in more detail? So I know that a really important element of what you do is to establish mentoring relationships. Absolutely. Um, our idea is that we work with peer mentors and the train the trainer model, right? Mm-hmm. We equip them with all kinds of leadership experiences. We expose them to all the resources on campus. And then we have them mentor the un- incoming first years. Mm-hmm. So what happens um, with multicultural communities is you don't just stop at that year. That person stays your mentor for mm-hmm. <laughs> the rest of your life in many cases. Yeah. We have many faculty and staff here who went through the program who are still in touch with their mentors, right? Uh, Lynx has been going on for 35 years. Mm-hmm. So 35 years of mentoring. And, uh, Lynx is? Is the first year program at Ohio mm-hmm. University that comes out of OMSAR that provides peer mentoring, tutoring, um, professional advising, right? All the experiences that we can provide at OMSAR. When you get more, so, so the the mentoring is a very important part of that about establishing community. Um, it's linked to the academic side of things, but if you talk a bit more specifically about how you integrate tutoring, supplemental instruction, and some of those strategies mm-hmm. um, to help the students as they're going through. Absolutely. So um, the students receive that peer mentoring. They also get professional um, student advising from our professional staff, which means that we are encouraging them to use tutoring for every mm-hmm. class. We pay for all of it. Um, they, of course, have supplemental instruction available to them. In addition to that, we actually have notes um, that we keep for them, and we have office hours mm-hmm. as one tag that must be marked when we speak with them, because we think it's very important that they speak to their faculty if they're going to get far in their field, mm-hmm. and if they're going to explore new areas for minors, for certificates, for study of broad, right, all of those experiences. So um, another component of that that we're launching this fall is the Inclusive Faculty Advocates Program, Mm -hmm. and it's OMSAR Inclusive Faculty Advocates. The idea is that faculty across campus would volunteer to be open to have our students stop by during their office hours Mm -hmm. so that a student who's struggling to negotiate a new college or a new major or minor um, has a friendly face that is willing to speak with them. And theoretically, that's everyone. But it helps to have a designated person that will welcome them and say, oh, you're with OMSAR. Absolutely. Come on in. Let's talk about this. Mm -hmm. Let's think about some new approaches to your learning. Or let's expand your vision of what you can do in your field. And our hope is that that will also yield more minors and certificates for all those who are participating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the the reason that you do this and and that we do this as a university and and we would hope other I know that other universities do that as well. The reason we do this is to promote um, inclu- inclusivity, Absolutely. so that the student has a opportunity to be successful. You know, to their ability. Um, you know, you've been with this program for you know many years now. What 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 are some examples that you've seen that that tells you? Our students are succeeding academically, socially, et cetera, because of these intentional efforts that we're doing. Um, One good example that I can give you is study abroad. When I first started, we simply did not have our students participating in study abroad in the numbers that we expected, Mm -hmm. certainly below what the rest of the university was Mm -hmm. seeing. And so we decided we'll start our own study abroads, right? And so we reached those students in a different way. We said, here's some gateway programs. We'll do them over break so they'll be less expensive, right? (laughs) We'll find some ways in which they'll work for you. You know you have folks who are going and directing, who have the proper degree 
degrees, but are also concerned about your well-being and are going to be culturally competent. So since that started, we've had students who start with one, usually Jamaica, and mm. then start going. We've had students who took advantage of four study abroads, but their gateway study abroad was with us. So mm -hmm. sometimes it's about establishing that comfort level. And once they see what it's like, it's no longer intimidating. It's no longer, I've never left Ohio. I don't have a passport. I don't yeah. know what I would do out there, right? We have one program, Jamaica. They fly together mm -hmm. because it's important to get through security together. It's important right, to right. be able to get on the plane in the right seat and not be intimidated at every step of the journey. So that's what we do. We facilitate that learning so that experiential and service learning comes without that high cost. Mm -hmm. You know, it's I, I don't know if I've told you this story before, but I did not have a passport until I became a faculty member here. And I, you know, so part you know. of that is I grew up in a small town in Kansas uh, that is not dissimilar to Appalachian, Ohio. Uh, my my parents were, you know, very blue collar. Uh, I was a first generation college student, you know, so I certainly don't touch all the bases, but I touch many of the ones mm -hmm. that students in your program would. And, you know, it took it took a welcoming campus to open literally that that horizon for me of, of, of working internationally. And, and now I do that every year. Um, so it's so important to provide those opportunities. So. Absolutely. Are there other types of experiential learning activities that you do uh, more programmatically in addition to the international part? Um, we have several international ones, obviously. In addition mm -hmm. to that, we teach seminar courses for our scholars, for our premier scholars, and are able to take them through choosing extra certificates, experiencing being on campus, taking them to specific programs where we feel that they can learn and then having reflections after. We also have requirements with their scholarships for all of the scholars that are community service as well as professional and personal development mm -hmm. workshops. So all of those are intended to create that experiential learning. Mm -hmm. So because you're a university-wide initiative at Ohio University, you have to rely on some degree of, of faculty being willing to get involved with you. What are some strategies that you use to promote faculty involvement um, in a meaningful way that helps you achieve your goals? Sure. I think the first step is trying to talk with the deans, <laughs> trying to explain, right, what we're about and what and we do. And then you learn that deans have no power. <laughs> <laughs> they have no power, but that figurehead actually has a lot of power. And if you're behind it, the faculty then start to think mm -hmm. about why you're behind it. And if they trust you, they will follow through, right? So one of the things that we have found also is affinity groups are key. If we have a first-gen professor who gets that a third of our scholars are first-gen at least, then they'll be willing to come on board and help us with a project. If we have someone else who's of a certain background, so for instance, Ohio Reach scholars are those scholars who were in foster care at any point in time mm. or were emancipated minors, and so mm -hmm. we serve them as well. When we have faculty and staff who have that experience in common, they're quite willing to mentor for us. Sure. So there are those ways in which we touch upon that. The other thing is sheer data. Mm -hmm. Right? We can come to you and we can say, this many of our scholars are in your college or your major, mm -hmm. and this is why it matters. So we try, you know, the, the kind of standard obligation of a faculty member to serve those students. Yeah. But we also touch on what, what do you care about and how can we work together so that the student comes out on the other side mm -hmm. a better scholar. I know in, in various years we've worked with your office to identify the students in the Scripps College and did just a simple lunch with them, yeah. you know, things like that that um, you know, really honors that they're a part of the college um, and at the same time says we care you know, about you. Um, I think that's important. 
Absolutely. And you've gone beyond that because you've also sponsored research mm -hmm. expo um, sessions for them. So you're saying you're valuable to us as a scholar, not just I'm here for you, but also I right. believe in you as a scholar. And the fact that you're presenting this paper means that a faculty member mentored you mm -hmm. and taught you how to create a poster and taught you how to put what you've learned in the classroom in a way that makes it accessible to everyone else, thereby boosting their self-esteem. They often win the awards, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. They just thrive under this environment. And so we know if we can connect them, they will stay and they will thrive. Yeah, I think it's important to think about, I, I think it's, there's a thread if you think about what you were saying about the international work, uh, the, the research and creative activity fear, there's a thread between those that says, we're not going to treat our scholars differently. We're going to help them succeed mm -hmm. in the areas that that everybody should be succeeding in. And you know, I think that is a very intentional strategy that, that you and your program have, but it's one that we've certainly tried to embrace. And you're right, mm -hmm. um, it's a way that you know our students can know that there is support there for them and that we want yeah. them to thrive as we do all students. Um, I wanna switch gears just for a second. And um, so we have programs like yours and mm -hmm. um, and, and we hope that, you know, really in any organization that there is an intentionality behind being an inclusive, uh, welcoming environment, right? So, mm -hmm. so that's important to do. So I want to think about some ethical dimensions that surround that. And I don't mean the obvious ethical dimension of, you know, the ethical thing to do is to be inclusive. That, that's a <laughs> given, right? Yeah. That's a given. But, but it seems to me that there are some um, maybe, I don't know if tricky is the right word, but there's some other eth ethical dimensions. So for example, let me get to the question um, so that so that we can have dialogue about it. So if you're going to have a program to be inclusive for any type of student, whether it's uh, multicultural defined narrowly or broadly like you do mm -hmm. for first generation students, et cetera, you have to put a label on a student in order for them sort of to be a part of that program. And, you know, I think about this in terms also of learning disabilities. And mm -hmm. so I know that from things that I've done in some of my research in the past, that labels are both constraining and also liberating. Mm -hmm. uh, what are your thoughts on, you know, that, you know, because there is a labeling element to it. How, how, do, how do you sort of approach that when you talk about the fact that your program is in some ways labeling people, absolutely. But to do so in a way that's empowering. I mean, how you know? What are your thoughts on that issue? So I think on the second day on the job, right after I'd met the staff, I said, from here on out, we don't call them students; we call them scholars, hmm. right? So let's start with that. Mm -hmm. And so they're um, our scholars. Every time we talk about our programs, we talk about the fact that our Templeton scholars, right, have a minimum of a 28 ACT and probably a 3.8 or higher of a GPA. So we try to reduce that stigma that people sometimes think multicultural must not be qualified. Actually, multicultural yeah. is a superstar, yeah. right? Yeah. And so we've changed that attitude with the scholars as mm -hmm. well. So they will themselves tell you, oh, yeah, I'm an excellent scholar. This is a merit scholarship. And that's why I'm allowed to be part of mm -hmm, that, right? Mm -hmm. In addition to that, we've opened it up so that faculty and staff can feel free to bring over a scholar and say, this student has a lot of potential or is doing well, but they need something else and you're it. Right? Mm -hmm. And so we put them on a waiting list and they get added. So what we have is a whole variety of scholars who have lost that stigma around Amsar. In fact, Amsar is, you know, their home, as they yeah, say. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think that's the advantage, right? Mm -hmm. And um, at one point we considered, you know, 
budget cuts, et cetera, changing and getting rid of the green shirts that they wear that say links on their first year, right? Mm -hmm. And then we decided against it because what we found was faculty were telling us, oh, I saw the green shirt and I knew I could call you and talk to you about this student, whether they were exceptional and they should be applying for a Fulbright or whether they were struggling because something else was going on. That kind of label was actually a positive mm -hmm. label. So yes, it, it can go both ways. It's just yeah. a matter of how you work with that label. Well, the point you make, though, is really important that, that yes, there is a, a, a type of labeling that does happen in any of these types of processes and programs, but we need to know that we have the power to bring definition to and actually choose which labels are being used. I love what you said about the student versus scholar, and that's something that now that you say that, I, I know I always hear you say scholar, yes. but until you hear that story, until you hear you say that, I'll, I'll never say student again when I'm referring to people in OMSAR. I mean, you know, you need to hear that explanation to understand that that was a very intentional thought, you know, that went behind how we're going to talk about the, stu the, the scholars mm -hmm. in this program. I, I really appreciate that. And, you know, I'm first generation, mm -hmm. right, Latina, daughter of immigrants, <laughs> right? For me, that that definition made a world of difference. There was something that I could follow up on. Mm -hmm. That's the reason I got a PhD, because somebody said, you're a scholar. This yeah. is excellent work. Carry on. And I thought, I am too a scholar. <laughs> right <laughs> before that, I was just this you know, first-gen kid that didn't know which way to go. I, I think a fascinating study would be to hear people's stories about when they first saw that going to graduate school and maybe even becoming a college professor was within the realm of possibilities. Because yes. I remember it very vividly. And it was a simple, innocuous conversation where um, I was in a debate squad room at my university. And so I was probably a, a first semester junior or second semester sophomore, one, somewhere in that time frame. And inside that squad room, there are also three faculty offices, um, one of the current one, the current debate coaches office and then two former debate coaches, but they were all in there. One of those former debate coaches was my advisor. And so, you know, I got to know him because of that. But long story short, I was I was reading a journal um, that was about argumentation, you know, in between classes. I was just and it wasn't for a class. It was just a journal that was sitting on a mm -hmm. shelf. And he looked at me and he said, Scotty, when I see people doing that, the next conversation I usually have with them is about graduate school, you know? Yeah. And yeah. I would have never thought that. I mean, I assumed I was going to go back to my hometown and, you know, work at a radio station or a railroad or something. I don't know. Yeah. But, but um, you know, those, those stories are really important. It goes back to mentoring and helping people see visions of themselves down the road, which is exactly what your program is trying to do. Yeah, and as first gen, often that first move is, that's the great striving to go to college. Yeah. But what are you doing next? And it's yeah. not till someone opens your eyes and you think, oh, wow, I could do that. Yeah, absolutely. There's, yeah, no question. Last question I want to ask yeah. you um, is, is um, so at, at OU, we as a university have a celebration at the end of the academic year that coincides with commencement for um, students of color uh, mm -hmm. when they are graduating. Can you describe that? Because I, I got to <laughs> tell you, it's well, it might be hard to describe, but it it's it's probably one of the most moving experiences that, as an academic, I've you know been honored to participate in, and it's I think it's very unique, and I would love to have you know people hear this because I think that's an example of being an intentionally inclusive educational mm -hmm. institution. Yeah, but we're always happy to have you there yeah. <laughs> and giving out those awards. Um, so it is uh, Kushinda. 
um, slash ritos de pasaje, which means it's a rite of passage, right? Mm -hmm. And the idea is to celebrate these scholars, but celebrate them in the context of their whole being. You know, we often talk about our authentic selves versus our ambassador selves as people of color, right? When we show up to work, we're our ambassador selves. Mm -hmm. And when we're with our friends, we're our authentic selves. And so that is a form in which Every student can be their authentic self. They have family. They have friends there. Mm -hmm. They know they're supported. They can do a dance as they walk across that stage. They decorate their caps. There's just a joy and just an energy in that auditorium that you just cannot explain unless you're there. But it really is a moment where the students feel every little bit of support that they had at this university got them there. And you can see it on their faces. You can see it in the way they walk across that stage and get that diploma. It's it's just a marvelous experience. I mean, what what always strikes me is that um, the students are allowed to be authentic. And let's face it, at most graduation ceremonies, there are are rules that say Mm -hmm. You get across the stage as quickly as you can and, you know, don't take a selfie. I mean, all that stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's not the case here. I mean, you're right. But but the other thing that is so impressive about it uh, and, and moving is that each student's story is honored. And Absolutely. so, you know, rather than just calling a name, there there is a, there is a relatively detailed narrative mm-hmm. about that student, um, both – you know, who they are currently and what they want to become. And that's so compelling, and it's so different than what we get at us- usual graduation ceremonies. Absolutely, and it tells their story in a well-rounded <clears throat> way, heading back to the family that supported that they got there, right? The folks that they feel were supporting them along the, this journey in mm-hmm. the university, but also their hopes, dreams, aspirations. It's not just about what degree they got. It's about what they want to do next. Yeah. And so your heart is filled with joy at the fact that this is why we do it every day. This is why we show up. This is why we support them because we're going to watch them walk across that stage. And that's just a very special experience. It very much is. Well, Marlene, I really appreciate you being here today and and talking with us. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. Yeah, you all do great work and I'm proud to have you as a colleague. Thank you. We just got done listening to Marlene De La Cruz talking about work at Ohio University. Our next guest on the program is Dr. Michael Arrington, who, as I mentioned, is a faculty member at Sam Houston State University. Mike, it's great to have you on the show. Ah, it's a pleasure, Scott. So, Michael, I guess to start with, I mean, your background is that you've been a faculty member now at multiple institutions. And, um, you know, you yourself went through an institution of higher education. And what I'm really interested in in learning about is how important inclusion is because, you know, as, as Marlene and I were discussing, we talk about diversity all the time and for rightful reasons and we need to, but I don't think that inclusion is talked about as much. Um, it's not to say that it's not, but I don't think it's as mm-hmm. dominant in the conversation. So I want I want listeners to hear about, you know, what your perspective on inclusion is and why Um, either over the course of the time that you've been um, a student and then a faculty member, if you've seen experiences that raise that as an issue for you, um, or just more generally as a a person in higher education, you know, why you think that's important. Oh, well, yes, I have taught at multiple institutions in multiple parts of the country over the past, oh my goodness, nearly 20 years. And I have noticed significant differences across those institutions uh, in the way in which they address 
inclusion and the degree to which they address it. Um, certainly, as you mentioned, diversity was a, is, has been a buzzword for such a long time that people have been uh, focusing attention on it, but often in a way that dismisses or ignores uh, the concept of inclusiveness. And so we know there's a difference, for instance, between the talk of diversity that often plays itself out in legalistic senses uh, in the context of university admissions, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, and maybe to some degree even in, in, the, in promoting diversity within the cultural life of the university. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And inclusiveness, which for me has relevance for the uh, cultural life of the university, uh, for students, and for faculty. Uh, I'm immediately reminded of a couple of instances. Uh, one comes from my time at Indiana State University. During my time there, uh, Indiana State was highly concerned about issues of diversity and went out of their way to recruit a more diverse student pool. They focused in large part on the Chicagoland area because mm -hmm. it was an area with lots of opportunities for reaching minority students. So they brought lots of students in that way, only to find out that many of these students would get to campus, go to their classes, go back to their dorms, and as soon as the weekend hit, get out of town. Mm -hmm. uh, because they didn't feel as though they were a part of that university community. During my time there, something happened that I did not expect. A group of theater students, a group of African Amer mostly African-American theater students, decided that they wanted to put on a production of The Color Purple. Mm -hmm. Well, at a school this size and with a pool of students uh, who, to, who were prospective actors and um, crew members for the show, they didn't have enough people to do it within the theater department. But these kids took their concerns, which were concerns about inclusion. They wanted to hear, they wanted to see their voices. They wanted to see and hear a more diverse group of voices in the texts that they got to work with. And they went to the theater department. They went to the history department. They went to uh, the student interest group for African American studies and to the dean's office uh, of their respective colleges. And they generated enough funding to support, uh, to pay for the rights fees to put on this play. They put out a campus-wide casting call. They sold out four shows hmm. um, of a production of The Color Purple on a campus where not many people turned out for theatrical performances. Mm -hmm. But to this day, I'm still in touch with students who participated in that, and they talk about what a meaningful experience it was for them and how they felt more a part of the university experience as a result. Um, I, think that I think that people are learning. As I've moved from one campus to another, I've seen an increasing um, amount of attention paid to that notion of inclusion, not just bringing people in, but making them feel valued while they're here. They're not just a, just, not just a number, not just a box to check off for diversity purposes, but they want to hear, but showing that we want to hear those students' voices and that we want to show an appreciation for their worldviews. Uh, as someone who 
is in the classroom working with students, I try to encourage that kind of inclusion uh, through my through the plans I make for the classroom. Mm-hmm. I have learned uh, that it I, that I have to stay. I have to. I have to be fairly well versed in matters of culture as they relate to my students, um, whether I want to or not. I mean, it's not a matter, not that I don't want to, of course. Uh, But I find myself, for instance, now at Sam Houston State and what might be the most diverse student population I've ever worked with uh, demographically. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's an interesting, there's Certainly racially and ethnically, there's a great deal of diversity here. Uh, I have have more students uh, with a broader range of work experiences, um, including lots of students with military and police experience. And it has been quite, so far, it's been a, a wonderful experience to have uh, people working with the police department, sitting in the class with 18-year-old freshmen uh, who are excited about getting to college and experiencing independence for the first time. <laughs> it's interesting um, when you were talking about the color purple. Uh, you know, Marlene, when she when she was describing the program that she directs, the OMSAR program that I, I, I'm sure you remember, um, you know, it's a systemic approach by the university to – uh, have inclusive um, support for students um, of different backgrounds. So there's a systemic approach like that. But what I really liked about your story about the color purple is that there also in some ways needs to be these serendipitous events that are visible that almost happens, you know, be, just because somebody decided it was the right thing to do, but it, but it wasn't this big university, you know, um, initiative, right? I mean, it, it was something right. that the community just said, we need to do this so, so, that, so that we can show, um, you know, different ways that we value diversity, and that, that in and of itself is an inclusive act. Absolutely. I think that, for, that to the university's credit, the greatest thing they contributed to inclusiveness uh, in the case of the color purple uh, story was that they were willing to listen to the students, that there were faculty and administrators who had an open door and didn't dismiss these students' concerns offhand. I, they seemed to embrace the opportunity to engage in a dialogue with the students about what would be what would be most useful, most helpful for those students, and I think they earned a lot of goodwill with mm-hmm. a lot of students who will be sending, uh, in a practical sense, who will be sending little brothers and sisters and cousins and friends uh, to IS to Indiana State over the next few years because their experience was so much better than than the experiences of some of their friends who went to other schools and didn't have that opportunity. Right. So let me switch gears just a little bit and and actually go back to um, a place you were starting to talk about a little bit ago. So you've been teaching for a while. Um, You and I are both about the same age, so we've got got the gray hair to prove it, right? Indeed. If you were were giving advice to um, teachers about how to make their classroom an inclusive environment, so we're not... We're not. I mean, certainly there's an institutional overlay, whether it be a you know a high school or a university, where we hope that they will have robust inclusion 
um, efforts going on that's more systemic. But, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of the um, high school or college experience is what happens inside the classroom. And so, you know, what are some strategies that you've observed to be effective that will create a perception of inclusion for students in a particular class? I would suggest, first and foremost, that people think about their classrooms uh, as spaces for dialogue. Uh, dialogue in the kind of, um, in the sense which people like Carl Rogers and Martin Buber talk about it, that there's this space that presents opportunities for significant living moments, for mm-hmm. learning moments. Mm-hmm. And those moments require a degree of openness that often doesn't get talked about to me, that I don't think get talked about thoroughly enough. Because a lot of people think of dialogue and talk about it in terms of openness, as in willingness to disclose as much as possible. But the real openness that's at the heart of dialogue is an openness to the possibility of being changed by the encounter with another. I think that if we show our students that we are open to that kind of change, that's an important first step in generating the kinds of dialogue that we would regard as inviting inclusiveness into the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, a few years ago, I learned the importance of the word tentative on my syllabus. I, I <laughs> list my course schedule, and I, once upon a time, I used to get upset if anything happened uh, to disrupt my perfectly planned schedule. But I came to learn that sometimes the flow of a conversation will make me aware of things and make, other, and make classmates aware of things uh, that one or more students might bring into the conversation that we need to investigate further. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I tell students that my, that my syllabus is tentative, uh, my class schedule is tentative, and that if opportunities for learning take place that take us in a different direction while still being germane to the course material, uh, it's not uncommon for me to bring in a different set of re- an additional set of readings and say, "Hey, someone's mentioned mm-hmm. these ideas from as they related to interaction between Latina women, Latina women and their daughters uh, in a course, for instance, on interpersonal communication." Uh, this is an interesting context that we haven't covered in our textbook, but this clearly has some importance for people in the room. Let me bring in a couple of articles and let's talk about that at our next meeting. Uh, So we'll worry about revising the syllabus in a couple of days, but right now let's focus on the learning. I think the most important thing we can do as instructors is be flexible. Mm -hmm. And I know that that flies in the face of a lot of what we're taught because Flexibility tends to be presented as the opposite of preparation, and we're told about the importance of being prepared in the classroom. Uh, but we, but I think those two need to be integrated more. Part of being prepared is knowing that, um, knowing that serendipitous events might occur in a classroom that create the moments of learning that are going to have the greatest impact on students. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm not offended by that anymore, but um, I think we sometimes feel as though we know how the class should run, and if it doesn't run exactly like that, we wonder what we did wrong. Often we didn't do anything wrong. We just need to be open to more opportunities to generate learning with our students. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Mike, the the last question that I have for you, um, 
You know, I, I think that as I look at discourses that go far beyond my university um, and even far beyond higher education, I really think it's fair to say that people don't know how to talk about these topics very easily, right? And, um, you know, they just don't. And, and I get that because, um, you know, I, I think people uh, have genuine fear about talking about it because they're going to say something wrong, et cetera. I mean, you know all this, and I, and I bet most of the listeners can, can understand that as well. You know, talk through with me if you, you know, you yourself a black man on a university campus or or just walking around town. I mean, I remember some incidents, you know, when you were living here that that could just as easily be this. And you encounter a situation where it's not inclusive and it could be downright um, racist, but but it also just could be that the person has said or done something where they just didn't think through why that wouldn't be inclusive, right? So I know I'm not giving you a very concrete situation, but I but I know that you've experienced many of these and, and know yes, much better than concrete I. concrete situations come yeah. to mind, well, no doubt. So I don't want you to speak about, you know, what your favorite way to react is, but how do you in that moment have a conversation with someone about that that is an authentic learning situation, you know, perhaps for both of you. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's like you were talking about with dialogue. I mean, a lot of times in that instance, you either ignore it, which is not addressing what needs to be addressed, or I think it's also very easy to address it in a way that doesn't create dialogue with the person and they leave maybe even more entrenched than they were. So I'm trying to think through, you know, how it is that we address these micro moments where there's a chance for good to happen and, I don't know that we've figured out how to do that very well yet. Mm, I agree. Um, I start. I would start with some of the thoughts of Carl Rogers, who is one of the most influential people I've ever read. Um, I loved his notion of unconditional positive regard as a part of <laughs> working in helping professions. And, of course, he talks about it within context akin to psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. But oh my goodness, as a teacher, I find often uh, that that working with my students, that facilitating their learning requires that I look at their, dare I say, moments of ignorance or areas of ignorance, uh, not as opportunities for me to be judgmental, but opportunities for me to show that kind of positive regard, to show Hmm. that I value them as people and they may be people who have not had experiences that exposed them to knowledge that I might think of as um, things that they should know at this point. Likewise, I think when I have opportunities, when I've encountered those kinds of situations, um, once upon a time, um, I taught a special topics course as an undergraduate course at the University of Kentucky, heart of SEC country, and it was a course on interracial communication. Mm-hmm. It is what I regard today, to this day as my greatest noble failure in the <laughs> classroom. And it is because I tried to encourage people to open up and talk because I thought they would be scared to death to say anything. And so that was my struggle for the first few weeks of the course. Open your mouth to say something. And I talked to them about the importance of that as part of dialogue. And then all of a sudden, we got over that hump. And everybody wanted to say everything on their mind. (laughs) 
And on the afternoon when I had to, when I nearly had to jump on a table to keep a student on one side of the table from throttling a kid on the other side of the table, <laughs> I thought we needed to step back and make sure we understood this dialogue concept a little more thoroughly. <laughs> In moments like that, I try to take us back to, as a starting point, that notion of positive regard. We're all here. We're all here in the case of in the classroom trying to further our education, trying to get, trying to move towards this self-actualization that will manifest itself in professional advancement and personal growth. Um, When it's that two people who are engaging in a conflict out in public somewhere, um, when I talk to my kids about what we saw and when and given the opportunity to talk with someone who's upset about how he or she has been treated or spoken to, I try to start with that notion of unconditional positive regard, that he, that while it's so tempting to want to just dismiss those people as jerks who just don't get it, um, I think instead starting from an assumption that these people are um, worthy of our respect and that we need to start from the point from a point at which we can see that and express that we value these people uh, increases the likelihood that we will create that kind of moment of learning that is a lot easier said than done <laughs> absolutely um, yeah and if you think about the kind of whether it's personal experience or larger cultural socializing agents uh, that exert influence on people I, it's very hard to to countermand all of that. Um, during my interpersonal, com- sorry, intercultural communication course yesterday, we watched a video clip uh, that's kind of going around the internet now from a woman running for a city council position in mm-hmm. Michigan who yep. talked about wanting her town to remain as white as possible. Uh, it's really hard. It was very hard for my students to think about that as. Uh, the starting point for a dialogue with this person, for a potential dialogue with this person. But the alternative is to accept those things as they are, and things don't get any better that way. Hmm. So it's hard work to try to find that starting point where we can see that we're, that we really aren't, that we're not human beings talking to, that we're not forces of good fighting against forces of evil personified in these other people. No, we're people who have different sets of experiences in the world, and they've led us, in some cases, to some faulty um, conclusions about other people and about and about the way the world works and about the way that individuals and groups of people behave. But we have to do whatever we can to get to that point, or else it's the alternative is just rather depressing to me. Amen. Hey, those are wise words, my friend. I really appreciate you being on. Ah, thank you. Anytime, my friend. Our guests today were Dr. Michael Arrington from Sam Houston State University, where he's a faculty member, and Dr. Marlene De La Cruz Guzman from Ohio University. Thank you for listening to Teaching Matters, produced by WOUB Public Media. You can always listen at woub.org slash listen. We're also available through all podcasting apps like Google Play, iTunes, and NPR One. 
You can contact staff of the podcast with ideas, questions, or comments through our Facebook page. Simply search for Teaching Matters Podcast on Facebook. Make sure that you like us and look for updates. Our audio engineer and associate producer is Adam Rich. I'm Scott Titsworth. Have a great day and thanks for listening.